Welcome to Paintbrush and Ivories, the podcast for artists and curious creatives that connects creativity with the heart and soul. I'm Michelle Walker, and I'm here with two amazing Australian artists, Shona Wilson and Jess Paulson. Hello, Shona. Hi, Jess. Hello. Lovely to be here. Hi there. I recently met you both and have been re-inspired by how you're approaching this topic of art and nature and this idea of art working for nature, which we're going to dive into. But first, let me give our listeners a brief intro for you both. Shona Wilson is an Australian sculptor living and working in the north coast of New South Wales on Warramai country. Her 35-year art practice engages intimately with natural found materials to create assemblages and installations, both in the studio and outdoors, connecting people with nature. And Jess Paulson lives and works in a big forest on the far northwest boundary of Byron Shire, backing onto Gondwana Forest of the Bundjalung Nation. Jess feels that in the process of collecting and making things in nature, there is a gradual unraveling of the conscious mind to reveal a deep sense of self-understanding and healing. Well, it's great to welcome you both here, and I'd love it if we could dive in to find out more about your current art practice. So people who are listening who might not have met you or might not know your artwork well, just so we can find out a bit more about that. So Shona, I'd love for you to talk to me a bit about what you're working with, the themes you're playing with, the materials you're using. Just give us a feel for your art practice. Okay, well, my practice has morphed and changed over many years and it sort of goes in cycles, I suppose, where I'm, I need to make my practice sustainable for me as well as the work itself. So I spent a long time doing studio work with natural found materials, making them into assemblages and showing them in galleries. And that was wonderful and connected a lot of people with, with looking closely at um, intimate views of nature in ways that they may have never experienced them before. But then the physical impact on my body was not sustainable to do that. So I went back to my original inspiration being Andy Goldsworthy and took my practice outside where I was could be more playful, more spontaneous, be moving around like a normal human being, like what a human body is meant to do, and and in nature and feeling and receiving all the benefits from being in nature longer. And really, yes, I think that's where my more embedded or visceral experience of the wonder of nature and the changeability of it all, the transformative and the transforming quality of everything and the ephemeral nature of everything really came home. And But it was combined with a playful exercise. So that became a very joyful experience and that then extended out to workshops and helping or hopefully helping people connect with nature the way I did and growing in wonder and curiosity and connection to the environment. So you've taken yourself out of the concrete floored studio and back put your feet onto the earth and in the grass. Has that been part of what you found has been yeah. a real change for you? Definitely, but I'm also going back into the studio. It needs to be a flow between the two spaces. For me anyway, I need that that stillness, that controlled space as well because a, a state of meditation can happen in there as well as outside. But I do find it's much easier to get into that kind of flow or state of presence when I'm outside working because when I go outside to make work, I don't 
preempt. There's no concept. I'm purely going with what I intuitively want to work with as a material or a place that I'm called to. And then whatever happens there happens there. So it's uncontrived and unconceptual. Mm. And then afterwards I can reflect on that and understand maybe what's happening there. <laughs> maybe the understanding comes. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah. Jess, what about you in terms of your current practice? Tell us a little bit about what you've been doing and what what's got your attention. My practice is also morphing and changing in the last couple of years with, you know, the recent climate disasters. But fundamentally, it's about being working in nature. And as you said in the introduction, I live in a big forest, uh, taking onto National Park. It's nearly a couple hundred acres and then there's thousands of acres of National Park. And it's so what I found is it's a big, so I'm really interested in regenerative agriculture and I, I grow mushrooms and, and I'm interested in um, soil and compost and I've got my kids up there and and it's about living a life that is an artistic undertaking as much as anything. So weeding, I'm doing a lot of weeding and that, you know, weaving that up, that becomes something. So uh, I'm interested in bushcrafting and natural building. So that's all intertwined and I'm, I'm interested in engaging my children in deep nature we're climbing trees and making shelters for animals and winching huge sort of woven nests up into trees and yeah it's a sort of a foraging wild (laughs) forest existence which is beautiful and then of course we had the disaster and everything sort of fell down around us but essentially the practice is still the same there's just a few more obstacles to contend with Mm. Mm. It sounds like the forest is a big influence on you. As you were talking about it, I could feel the presence of the trees and having yes. seen some of your work, I can see how it influences between the soil and the trees and them holding yes. together, which obviously we'll talk a bit more about, but they didn't hold together in they part, didn't. do they? Mm-hmm. What have been some of the big influences or the pivotal moments in each of your practices? If you could talk to us a bit about that, I'd be really interested to hear I'd say the pivotal moments, you know, recently, probably the recent big fires, which were a couple of years ago. I've I've always been interested in, you know, habitat has been my main focus, habitat conservation, the loss of habitat. I've always made nests and collected things in nature. But the fires really, um, you know, working with my children, it, it was, it's just so intense. So, after the fires, we really focused on building shelters and little collecting stones and bones and and whatnot. And that really felt like a process of uh, reconnecting with this black, black landscape and trying to, uh, you know, make these offerings. You know, we made these little shelters and whatnot for the fairies and for the wallabies, but uh, mainly it was about just reconnecting the landscape and trying to soothe that sort of the terror and horror of what had transpired. And now a couple of years later with these landslides and the floods, it's the same process. You know, we're doing a lot of walking, just collecting things and just trying to reconnect with this landscape that was once so familiar, uh, which is now completely changed upside down. You know, whole mountains have fallen down. The landslides are a kilometre long and, 
300 metres wide. They're just, you know, you can't even see where they end and they've taken, you know, everything in their path. And uh, it's it's really hard to look at and to really take on. It's They're so huge. And, you know, our old friends, these giant trees that I imagined, I had imagined would outlive us all are gone or upside down or there's just absolutely no sign of them. You think, well, where did they go? They were, you know, 50 metres high. Like where does that tree go? We can't find it. Or the boulders or... So it's, yes, just coming to terms with that and uh, trying to find some sense of peace and uh, feel safe again in that landscape. That's what it's about now. Mm. Mm. And it sounds like the the walking in the world that you're doing and the collecting and is is just the way of physically getting in touch with yeah. a place that you knew so well. Such a disruptive time, isn't it, of a scale that we've not experienced. Um, I think this has been really quite big on the landscape for a lot of our community. Yes, it's shocking, and I f- I feel like unfortunately it's a sign of things to come, and I think when I really feel into it, I had, you know, I had moved out to the most remote property in the Shire. You know, I'm not a, I wouldn't call myself a survivalist, but I'm into bushcrafting and foraging and growing and all those things because it gave me a sense of we can, whatever's coming, we can get through this. And I think there's a lot of denial in that from, Mm. you know, what I understand now is, you know, I have all this middle caste privilege that I think that gave me a sense of some sort of sense of security but climate change <laughs> doesn't care about that you know these climate disasters that doesn't care what what skills you have or you know I mean it's helpful it's possibly at some point but really no one's safe mm. no and that was very much brought home to us in the last few years in this part of the world I know what yeah. about you, Shona? What's been some of your big influences? I mean, you talked about Andy Goldsworthy before, and that's something that I share a love of, and I'm sure many listeners who have the joy of art and nature probably have those kinds of artists in mind. What about other influences and perhaps any pivotal moments in your practice that you would like to tell us about? I think I set out on my path with natural materials and and looking for small details in nature when Two things sort of happened at once. I discovered the work of Andy Goldsworthy at, at art school and I went for a walk in the Himalayas and I was there by myself and I was walking down a street in Kathmandu when I first arrived and feeling very overwhelmed. I was in my early 20s. I'd never experienced a city like that before. It was pretty raw. And as I was walking down this street, there was this tiny niche in the wall and I stopped to look inside. It was, you know, maybe three centimetres square a tiny little hole, and I looked in there and there was nothing in there. But all the anxiety, everything around me disappeared when my focus went into this very small space. And it was a real aha moment of the power of the small, how much there is in a tiny place or an empty space. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not empty. It was absolutely full of imagination, potential, so when I went walking, I took that idea of the, that small thing and my eyes started looking for small things. But my my parents were also a huge influence in that. My mother was a plant person. My dad was an architect. So structure and plants were part of my upbringing as well. And I think what Jess was saying, the way she brings up her children and the way we bring up our children, what we bring into their life when they're young, 
can be um, pivotal and is very necessary if we're going to take this world into a better place. So, yeah, that happened. I was in my third year at art school when I returned and made my final work. I decided to limit my palette to just natural materials. And then I think slowly the more I work with natural materials, your, your love for nature grows even more and more because of the wonder of it all. And there's also the disaster of it all, but there's also the wonder of it all. And it's that having those two riding together that can keep us going and the hope going like the the wonder feeds feeds your spirit so that you can get out there and and keep doing whatever you need to do Mm. um and then the second really pivotal moment came when I was starting off with my workshops they're called collaborations with nature it's an ephemeral art workshop and I was working with some high school students and after the workshop finished I asked for some feedback or what had really impacted the young women, it was a girls' school, and one of the girls said, I'm not afraid to touch a leaf anymore. Yeah, wow. It was just (laughs) huge. I I just couldn't believe what I was hearing. Um, And I saw the chasm that there was between humans and the natural world, and so that really inspired me to keep going with, with the workshops. And it's a very gentle approach and a very healing way also to encounter nature and be with nature and share with other people that experience um, and be surprised and and be challenged because you can't impose an idea onto a material if you're not using any tools. That was the other thing with Andy Goldsworthy's work that really struck me was limit the palette to natural materials and don't use any tools except your own body. So when you don't have any other tools, you really have to work with the material to find out what it will do with you and without any real processing either. It's very sort of spontaneous and instant. So they were the two main things. And then just gradually with all of that and what's happening in the world around me, around us, it becomes political what you're making because you're working with with the environment and with nature and you can't help to start get involved on that level in some way. The work that we make is political or societal or environmental just by its its nature of working with nature. And yeah, the, the need, the need of the time to to bring this forward more and more and more is um what's driving me at the moment, I suppose. Mm. It, it's become the call has become greater as things get worse. Yes, I, I share your rev for that need for us. You know, it's time, isn't it? And I think I'm seeing this groundswell of artists wanting to talk about the stuff that we've just been talking about with climate disasters and people experiencing what they're experiencing. And it seems like this comes back to the question, and I want to just introduce listeners don't know there's an inaugural climate conversations project called mending and tending that jess and shona are part of and the mending and tending project is called art that works for nature and it's a collaboration between jess shona and sam moss and there's activities happening at the Lone Goat Gallery in Byronshire and on site at Torakina Nature Reserve near Brunswick Heads And one of the things that really tweaked my interest was this concept of art that works for nature, because I think there is an aspect of my art practice that's very much about 
calling forth the attention to things like the fires, like the floods, like the fragmentation of our landscapes, like the loss of habitat that you were talking of, Jess. I'm curious to hear a bit more about this phrase of art that works for nature. Could you talk a little bit more about that? So art can work for nature on many levels, an active level where people are out there creating work that has a a real positive impact, which sort of overlaps into landscaping and architecture and all those sorts of things, design. And there's art that works for nature by connecting people with nature and building a relationship. And there's art that works for nature in in showing nature and its beauty to people that may not have really taken any time to recognise that. And so I think, yeah, putting the natural materials, the way we've used them in this exhibition, I was talking to um, the director of the gallery who's been talking to people coming in in the last week or so, and so many of them have said, you know, are shocked at seeing a whole lot of leaves in a gallery but it's that elevation, that valuing. This is a value. And and because it's in a gallery, um, it's seen as having more value. So just in that simple act of, of using the materials that we've used and putting them into a gallery space has an impact. And it's, and it's been very moving for people. People have really responded with their hearts. So that's some of the ways that I can think mm. of that art can work for nature. There's a, a couple in America called Watershed Sculpture that have done some on-site works that help the landscape recover. I'm sure there's plenty of stuff happening in Australia, but it's not coming to mind. Jess might know a bit more. But it ties into all that regenerative agriculture and regenerative forestation, everything like that. Jess, I'd love to hear a bit more You've got some beautiful works in the exhibition and I take Shona's point about what happens when you take a leaf or a log or a piece of unfired ceramics, uh, you know, a a lump of clay and put it inside white walls that's known as a gallery and what that does to people's interpretation. But one of the works that really caught my eye was the log with the teal blue blanket inside it and that really earth red clay that you sealed the edge of it with and I just I just love the materials and the suspended nature of that and tell us a bit more about that work and how you see that relating to the art working for nature idea because I think that's really interesting to explore. Yes so thanks for that that work there was a collection of three logs and that was called Hollow Homes And it was a uh, collaboration between myself and a local organisation called Wild BNB who monitor monitor and make habitat. Uh, They're arborists and scientists and climbers and they've been working up at my place in Huonbrook for many years. That's how I've met them. They've been winching giant owl boxes up into the trees and glider boxes and over the years monitoring them and working with endangered species and... They uh, So they've been hollowing out these logs, which they've lent me to create these these works. And uh, I hadn't given it a lot of thought, to be honest. I just instinctively uh, put the blankets together with the logs. Uh, they were blankets that I'd been using to make wallaby pouches when I was working for the WIRES organisation, caring for macropods. And it seemed like a nice fit and the mud is uh, that really dark red mud is out of the landslide that goes through my driveway. I was 
feeling, you know, I was feeling for the animals, you know, the comfort of, you know, creating this beautiful sort of home for them. But I think what's fairly obvious now and what's sort of unravelling for me now is this understanding that, you know, ultimately that's sort of where I would like to be curled up in a warm blanket in a log makes me also feel safe and comfortable. And I think that's the power of art. There's a gradual sort of revealing of, of the sort of deep psyche <laughs> in regards to healing. And I think when we understand ourselves as nature, we are nature in nature. We talk about healing, healing the earth or we're adding things in the landscape and making these actions in the world. But ultimately we're, we're healing ourselves. It's a connection to the landscape, the, the circular energetic creativity um, that creates, I think, creates the healing in us and in, in the world around us. Yeah, just thinking about what you were saying about that, um, connecting na the nature in us, um, that we are nature and not separate for, from it. I think um, with working with the natural materials on a, on a small scale like I do and seeing the fractal geometry, those um, patterns that are within everything that comes into form and that huge feeling of connection that comes from that. Oh, my goodness, the the lines in the palm of my hand are the same as the lines in of veins in a leaf. We're the same. Mm. That is just a huge moment of connection and that repeats and repeats and repeats itself when you're working with natural materials and also getting onto a more esoteric level, the vibration of those things that you're working with are affecting you and then that's nature healing us and us healing nature in return it they're not separate art that works for nature nature works for art as well and i'm sure the consciousness of nature appreciates what we're doing mm. there's a when we go for a walk if we're appreciating where we are that uh, goes into into healing that space as well as ourselves so yeah, that's a more, sort of more esoteric level, but I think that's where, well, that's where ta nature takes you is into the metaphysical realm. Um, it's the metaphysical made physical. Yeah. And you experience that when you work with it. It becomes real. Which is a beautiful way to introduce a bit more information around the Mending and Tending project because this has been part of the underlying thoughts behind what you're trying to achieve and what Council's trying to achieve with the Climate Conversations project. So I'd love to hear a bit more about, just briefly about the project, where it came from, and then we'll talk about what events people can still join before the end of the month. There's still opportunities to get involved. Yeah, I'm happy to say something. Uh, so we did conceive of originally the project was to be focused on Torikina, which is a, a bit of a neglected area at Brunswick Heads on the uh, foreshore there. And it happened that uh, we were all interested in addressing different areas of this little reserve. It's wild, pretty wild. It's a place where a lot of homeless people would camp and there's fires in there and there's quite bad erosion and I guess we just wanted to give it some love and Sam is really has a long history of having the Brunswick Nature Sculpture Walk in that area so we all have a connection with the, 
with the space. Sam is particularly interested in the foreshore and the erosion that's occurring along the riverbanks. She does these really beautiful mangrove, what do you call them, mangrove roots? Yeah, which really talks about the habitat of the fish populations. That's where they go to breed and they hold the banks together. And, uh, yeah, so that was really interesting. So Sam sort of focusing on erosion and uh, mine was particularly concerned with the habitat, you know, the birds of that area in particular and what we're working with Wild B&B with their habitat monitoring work and the glossy crew, we've found that there's been a uh, number of critically endangered glossy black cockatoos sighted in that actual area, which was really exciting. And there's a collection of tassarina trees, which is their specific feed trees, and habitat clearing and loss of those trees is one of the reasons why they're so endangered. So it's really exciting to see those trees. So there's a we have now a project to get some habitat boxes up in that area just to support those birds that are breeding around there and struggling to find hollows uh, because hollows are found in the really big old trees and there's not many of those left. So, yeah, that's really been my focus, the birds. And um, Shona, did you want to talk about what you're up to in there? Yeah, just thinking about how Jess is kind of, more activated in making actual constructions that will be habitat. So she's sort of working with the animals and the plants and I'm working more with the plants and Sam's working more with water and and clay. But it was the idea of just shining a lens on Torakina as an example of any area that needs tending or mending. And, And we wanted it to be like lighting a spark in a fire there for more love to go into that park and and from that there's going to be some habitat boxes put in there I think land care have have said they're going to put in a a big basket for for weeding for people that are walking through the park to know what weeds there are and to be able to pick them out and throw them because a lot of it of regenerating a place is just removing the weeds and letting what nature does do its thing you know And I think Sam was saying that the mayor was talking about, yes, maybe they they can work on that erosion and building up the rock wall again. So we were hoping to be a catalyst, part of a a process. It's not like the process ends with our project. We're the beginning of a process of engagement with that site. And already uh, someone's gone in there and, and cleaned a whole lot of rubbish out of there. It looks a lot cleaner than it did a year ago. Mm. So that, already walking in there feels lighter and and more loved and people feel that energy in a place too when something looks well tended definitely yeah. they tend to want to care for it more as well so it's that ongoing sort of idea yeah so I'm I'm working with the leaves of the macaranga which I was just attracted to initially because of the heart shape of it a very cliched but very powerful symbol that heart shape that I know that people connect to easily. And then on researching the macaranga, um, I discovered that it is a, a pioneer species and used a lot in, in bush regen anyway. So that was a perfect match. And I've been making what I call tree bandages or leaf love bandages. And 
as a sort of symbolic metaphorical gesture going into Torakina and and wrapping a, a fallen over old banksia with with the community that was a community project and yeah just drawing attention to what needs to be mended and tended and the idea of the uh, of kintsugi as well in that mm. something that's broken can still have a purpose like that banksia we found had a whole lot of little seedlings underneath it it had a nursery there that we wouldn't have noticed unless we'd gone in there and spent a day with it wrapping it up <laughs> yeah and knowing that it's part of the cycle as well so even though it might fall down that you know you can notice and admire that what comes next which might be the fungi and the decomposition process I think the macaranga is a beautiful symbol it's interesting talking about some work that's been happening up at Lamington National Park so my connections are here in Northern Rivers but also across the border in the scenic rim and they found you were saying Shona just you know taking the weeds out the national parks staff up there, the rangers have actually been doing some clearing of the weeds that have come up post-fire and their regen that they've been monitoring has been amazing and across the border there's been a no-intervention policy and so they've been able to see what the difference is and the, um, the sort of levels of native species that have been able to come through because that weed blanket has been removed has been really significant and this is Gondwana National Park rainforest type environment. So we're not talking apples with apples, but I think that the philosophy and the practice can be very similar. So I love what you said about putting a spark into this, that that's what your project is. And you have obviously sparked some conversations because you've got Landcare being interested in getting involved and you've got council doing maybe some extra things and as well as the community just taking the initiative sometimes people need to be given permission don't they and perhaps a little bit of direction about the what to do what to do that's right but giving permission and maybe your project is also about permission giving that people can engage and care for places like Torakina. you've still got some activities with the project coming up i know was very lucky to come to the opening of the lone goat exhibition and that there's been workshops out in Torakina on site, out in the nature location for your event. But we've still got a series of artist talks coming up. I just want to run through those. Shona, your artist talk is on Saturday, the 5th of August. Is that right? At the Lone Goat Gallery in Byron? Yep. And that's at 1pm? Yes, it is. Perfect. And Sam's, Sam Moss is having her artist talk Saturday the 12th of August and Jess, yours is on Saturday the 19th of August. Have I got that right? And it's all at one o'clock, Lone Goat Gallery, Byron Shire. Uh, yeah, so mine, the, the talk will go from one till about two and then afterwards I'll be I'm offering a workshop in the gallery as well, working with the Magaranga leaves. And I think Sam is offering a workshop after her talk as well. And uh, I'm going to be talking in conversation with a, an eco-psychologist called Dr. Ashana Bragg, who's a local woman. And yeah, it'll be interesting to see this synthesis of nature and us and how we are the same, but she's the expert, not me. <laughs> so is there anything else that you'd like to add in talking about the Climate Conversations project that you're both involved in and the upcoming events before we wrap up today? I guess there was just one thing I wanted to mention around the climate conversations 
And that was one of the understanding that I did come to during the disaster and the 10 days that, you know, I was isolated at the end of my valley with the seven other people and my son. What I did, one of the big insights, why well, I feel it's big for me anyway, was that in the challenges that are sure to come in the future with the, the climate events, I think it's probably valuable for everyone to understand that regardless of your skills, everybody has something to offer. You know, I really got the sense, you know, some of us are, are great at fixing generators and that's a very valuable skill. But some some people are also great at telling stories, and which is also really important. Some people are really great at cooking and communicating and that's really valuable. So I feel like whatever you have, whatever your joy is, whatever your passion is and your skills, bring that, bring that because that's what we need, you know, whether it's art or, yeah, as I say, communication or climbing, whatever it is, we're going to need it, bring it, yes. Mm. Beautiful. Thanks, Jess. What about you, Shona, some thoughts about the project I suppose, yeah, it's it's moving from a conversation into an active conversation that we've tried to engage with to show that we've got to start walking the talk. Mm. That's it. Mm. <laughs> Using, yeah, whatever skill we have towards this common goal, we, we're going to need everyone's skills. And that there is a really central role for artists, I would advocate, that we've got a sensibility and a and a set of networks and a connection to some of the materials that I think are going to be really valuable. So, yes, I agree with all of that. So if people want to stay in touch and follow along with what you're doing, how can members of the audience connect with you and your work? Jess? Uh, I have an Instagram account at Jess Paulson Sculpture, and there's a link through to my website, which is www.jesspaulson.com. No, that's great. Thanks, Jess. What about you, Shona? How can people connect with you and your work? Yeah, also Instagram, Shona Wilson Artist, and uh, my website is shonawilson.com. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. The easiest way to connect with me. <laughs> that sounds wonderful. And I really am very grateful to both of you for spending a bit of time talking to me about both your art practice and your current work in this project, this very important project that's happening locally in Byron Shire. And just before I finish off, is there any final comments that you'd like to make? I'd just like to bring uh, Sam in here a little bit um, because she was really the, the connector, the communicator between Jess and I and a lot of the community events. Um, she, as well as being an artist, is a, a wonderful communicator and storyteller. So. Um, just want to acknowledge her part in all this was, yeah, she was pivotal. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Sam. And no pressure, but I'm hoping I'll be able to bring you on the podcast as well. <laughs> we couldn't organise all three today. So thank you, Jess. Thank you, Shona, for your time and for your energy, for the fabulous, inspiring work that you're doing. I really appreciate everything and have got re-inspired by this body of work that you're doing and sort of how it intersects with my artwork and the recent exhibition that I've just had thinking about fires and floods as well. It's been a great connection. I wish you well and thanks everybody for listening. Until next time. Bye for now. Thanks, Michelle. Bye. Thank you. Bye.